Hey everybody, I'm Rebecca Watson, the host of Quizotron, a monthly show recorded live here in San Francisco in which we make scientists and comedians battle to see who knows more about science and or jokes. And I thought it might be fun if in the weeks leading up to the big show, you podcast listeners got to know the panelists for that upcoming month. And I'm going to call it a Quizlet because that's cute. Uh, and each week I'll be joined by Quizotron's resident comedian, Keith Lowell Jensen, who is here right now. Welcome, Keith. Hey, Keith Lowell Jensen. That's me. That's you. Thanks for joining me. Uh, and thank you for joining me, our very first Quizlet guest, Seth Shostak. How are you doing there? I'm, I'm your resident, uh, resident scientist. Is that the deal? I mean, does that mean I get to hang out in the living room and take naps? Uh, uh, no, unfortunately, no. you are merely a guest scientist. <laughs> so Seth is Seth is welcome to my couch as long as he'll fold the laundry that's piled up on it anytime. Okay, maybe I'll just make it into a more comfy stack. There you go. Build yourself a little nest. Yes, I've done that many times. A show stack. So Seth, oh geez, <laughs> Seth is the senior astronomer and institute fellow for SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute. He also hosts SETI's radio show and podcast, Big Picture Science, and he is a Quizatron alum who is obviously by now known for his penchant for dad jokes. So thank you, Seth, for coming back to the show. My pleasure. So, so let's start with. The obvious question, have you found intelligent extraterrestrial life yet? Well, look, Rebecca, you don't really need to ask that question because clearly if we had, do you think, do you, think you wouldn't know the answer already? Well, I've heard that there are government cover-ups. So. Right. Who's gov- whose government is this? I mean, is this our government? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it could be that the Bulgarian government is covering it all up. But the facts are that, uh, no, no, we haven't found anything. And actually, the government couldn't cover it up. In case you're actually interested in whether they could, they couldn't. I am interested. Why Why do you think they couldn't cover it up? Well, you just consider the nature of the uh, experiment. Uh, you know, if you find a signal, you might believe it, you might not believe it. But if you do believe it, you would call up somebody at another organization, another institution, another place where they have big antennas or whatever and say, hey, would you mind verifying this? Because we're not sure that it's for real. It might be a bug in the software. Who knows? And, of course, they might be in a different country altogether, and they won't promise to keep anything quiet. Why should they? So, you know, the news would get out within days. It'd be all over the place. That's a, that's a fact. The people that like to think that the government is capable of keeping secrets and that the government would keep it secret, I think, are kind of nutty. And besides, this isn't a government program. I mean, we've had, you know, some signals that come in, and I keep waiting for the government to show up. It never shows any interest whatsoever. What? I feel like the logic that you're applying has a, a hole in it, though, because if that's true, then chemtrails also aren't real. And uh, we're not giving people autism with vaccines. Yeah, so, well, boom, all, 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 take that, are, scientist. Those, those are good points. I always figured it was the chemtrails that were giving people autism. But actually, chemtrails are real. There are trails coming out of the backs of jets. There are. They they. Don't do much except add some pollutants to the atmosphere, but that's all they do. I, I, don't, I don't know. They cause autism. They may uh, for any birds that are flying, you know, at 35,000 feet. I mean, I, I did see a way to battle these uh, chemtrails. A while back, I saw a YouTube video of a woman with a vinegar uh, squirt bottle, and she was squirting it into the sky in order to break up the chemtrails. So yeah. at, at least we can fight back. And it'll also get your cat off the couch, so it's nice. It's multi-use. Huh. 
Seth, where, what, what about, so you said when you get these signals, you compare it to other people's data. How often do you get a signal where you're like, this could be something, let's check it out? Very, very infrequently, you know, maybe once a decade or something. I mean, you get signals all the time. You know, that, that's a little different than in the movies where they, they sit around looking bored with no signals when they're trying to do something similar. And then suddenly something shows up on the screen and everybody gets excited. Right, right. Uh, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's great. But that's no more accurate than the movie's portrayal of the you know, daily life of a cowpoke in 1880. Um, so, it's, you know, it's not terribly accurate. But we do get signals all the time. But, you know, the algorithms that check out the signals, the simple tests that are made to determine whether these signals are really ET are so good now that very, very infrequently, as I say, on the order of a decade or so, you'll get a signal that the, the computers say, well, you know, this still looks good. And then you check it out by hand. What, what does and that entail? Well, mostly just moving the antennas around, making sure that the signal is locate, uh, localized to one spot on the sky. So it's, you know, really up there, as you were, uh, in the sky. And that it's moving across the sky at the same speed that the, you know, the stars move across the sky because of the rotation of the Earth. So that shows you it's not a satellite. <clears throat> It's not a, a radar set, you know, 100 miles over the horizon. It's actually something in the heavens. Right. Keith, did you have a question? I, I'm i wondering, you, you've been at this for a while. You're, you said about once a decade. Can you tell us about an exciting time when you got a signal that warranted looking further out? Yeah. There was one in uh, the summer, late summer of 1997, I guess it was. Uh, that was a pretty good one because... We were all sitting around the computers at three in the morning, looking at the printout or printout uh, the, the readouts on the screens, <clears throat> and uh, it it looked you know looked like the real deal. I mean, we automatically or manually would move the antennas a little bit, and the signal would go away. And then we move the antennas back toward the direction of the star system we were examining, and the signal would come back, and we'd move it farther away, etc. And uh, it passed all these tests, and it continued to pass these tests for hours. Until the Earth had rotated enough that whatever was producing the signal went below the horizon. And I would, uh, you know, I, I kept waiting for the men in black to show up because I thought this might be the real deal. <clears throat> Fortunately, those men in black were engaged in something else. I don't know. Maybe there was a party in Trent, New Jersey they wanted to attend. I don't know. They never showed. <laughs> I, I kept waiting for somebody to call up, you know, kept waiting for the president to call up. He didn't call up and waiting for uh, you know, the mayor of Mountain View here to call up. He didn't call up and. My mom didn't call up. Uh, eventually, <laughs> eventually, the uh, New York Times did call up. So they were the first ones to show any interest. And and what was the result of that? I mean, clearly well, uh, we we didn't run into any intelligent life. But do you, do you think that that was an actual signal from intelligent life? Well, that was an actual signal for sure. But it turned out it was coming from a uh, solar research satellite, a European research satellite that was uh, actually out there and fairly deep space uh, monitoring the sun. And this ah. was the telemetry from that satellite coming back to Earth. Ah. So you proved that there is indeed life in Europe. We Well, yes, or at least there was at the time <laughs> of launch. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we've mentioned politics a little bit. I want to kind of get into it uh, because <laughs> I'm wondering how you feel about Trump's interest in space exploration, considering his complete ignorance of every other scientific discipline uh 
is it a, is it a good thing? Is his interest in space exploration a good thing for for you, for us as humanity? What do you think? Well, I think it's a good thing uh, because imagine if he thought you know federal funding of science was a waste of money. I mean, he might have had that attitude. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of basic research that's funded by federal grants. I mean, applied research, you know, there there's applied research. Uh, some pharmaceutical companies, some. Uh, will do some research themselves into, you know, new pharmaceuticals. But if you're talking about, for example, the big questions, the hard questions like cure for cancer, uh, that's more likely to come from a federally funded uh, research program than from the private sector. So basic research that the federal uh, federal government does fund is is very important for the really big leaps in our knowledge. And uh, so NASA, which, of course, you know, builds big telescopes and is doing astronomy, not SETI, I might say, but at least yeah. doing a – I mean, um, you know, that that's important because if you're ABC Corp, you don't, you don't improve your bottom line by funding astronomy. Right. You know, there's no real payoff for that. But it is, you know, the key to learning a lot about, for example, physics. And in the end, that has lots and lots of practical applications. So, you know, it's, it's just, I think, uh, a good thing if maybe for peculiar reasons, I, I think he finds it – just exciting that we go into space. I don't know that he spends a lot of time looking at the science results right. of NASA's work, but better that he like it than that he don't doesn't <laughs> like it, don't you think? I mean, that's kind He's- of my concern, though, is this idea that maybe we're too optimistic just by the fact that he has expressed an interest in space, because at the same time, he is, or his administration at least, is pooling funding from uh, earth sciences from anything touching climate change and I'm wondering if he doesn't get immediate results like putting a man on Mars for instance uh, is he going to keep that interest up and keep funding the things that need to be funded yeah well I obviously don't know the answer to that yeah. the only thing I would say is that having worked for the federal government in summer jobs um, you know the the federal government the, the entire civil service the bureaucracy if you will the swamp if you want to call it a swamp it seems to be a little swampier than it ever has been. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's a very big operation. There are many, many, many people. And uh, as a result, it has a lot of inertia, which is to say, you know, almost nothing you do at the top is going to make it suddenly all change overnight or go away or anything like that. Right. And to be honest, that's that's a good thing. You don't want, you know, all these government agencies. Imagine if the patent office, because of a change at the top, suddenly disappeared tomorrow well, it can't disappear. You have too many people involved. And that's probably a good thing. Or the Postal Service. We'll, we'll just get rid of all of it next Tuesday. Right. right. <laughs> that isn't likely to happen simply because of the inertia of the organization. And in some cases, that's great. I mean, if you're a small startup, you know, your advantage is that you don't have that inertia. But if you're talking about essential services, you know, medical or education or any of these sorts of things, it's probably a good thing that there is some inertia. Yeah. Do you, do you think that I, – I, I think a lot of people right now um, are placing hopes in private industries. You've mentioned that government funding is what tends to get those big-picture questions answered. But do you think that private industries like Elon Musk's organization and things like that, are, do they have anything to contribute to SETI's mission? Well, uh, I don't know. In terms of SETI, the only thing I can think of right off – I mean, I think it's a great thing that they're doing it, by the way. But you notice that they're interested in uh, b- basically building rockets yeah. and sent them somewhere where you can take uh, <laughs> tourists, for example. Uh, obviously, there are tourists who would want to go into orbit for a, 
a weekend. There have been actually there have been market studies of all this. Um, many people are interested in weightless sex, apparently. So that's a market. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's tough on the uh, the vomit comment. Uh, well, I, as far as I know, it isn't usually done. But yeah. that you know, if you were up in orbit for a week, you know, maybe it'd be a different deal. I mean, there are people who want to put motels into orbit and so on and so on. Okay, but that's you know that's obviously served by making space travel less expensive, and so uh, the fact that people like Elon Musk and so forth are trying to do that they they you know there's money to be made putting up satellites and so forth i mean there is some money to be made in space and there's money to be made taking people around the moon or maybe even to mars does that help seti well not directly but on the other hand if you get cheap transport to for example the moon where you really would want to put your antennas to try and eavesdrop on et would be the back side of the moon because mm-hmm. that's uh, that's a place that's shielded from all the interference here on earth so that would be a good thing Boy, the Mile High Club all of a sudden seems so pedestrian. Well, that's right. They 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 set the bar too low. <laughs> right. Would a motel in orbit be called a rotel for rocket? Um, I, you know, <laughs> maybe motel sex. I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> I think you need to go patent this right now, Rebecca. I, I'm on it. I'm on it. Patent it or copyright it. So, with the idea of uh, putting antennas on the dark side of the moon for instance uh rebecca there is no dark side or, of the moon <laughs> oh boy should have known should have known <laughs> yeah do you mean the back side of the moon the i mean side the back side back side of yeah. the moon well the end of the it's called the moon's butt rebecca the, the butt, come on if you will. Yes. we're scientists yeah. here well in any case the advantage is think about it it's the one spot in the universe that's perpetually shielded from all the radio interference being generated here on Earth. Right. So it's, it's, it's radio quiet. And is there no current way to, to do that with, with our current infrastructure to get yeah, an, you can an do it. there? I mean, we have rockets that could, you know, land you on the backside of the moon. I mean, we've had rockets go to the front side of the moon. The backside isn't much harder, uh, if at all harder. But the problem is just landing there isn't good enough. I mean, if you've got to construct something, then you're probably going to want to have people involved. And uh, they'll want to eat and they'll want to communicate with their relatives and so forth and so on. All these are issues. You can do it if it were a national priority to put antennas on the backside of the moon. You know, if somebody was willing to spend $100 billion to do it, then it would happen. But, of course, that's far, far, far beyond the budgetary capabilities of this kind of research. So that that would be a, a major uh, leap forward for, you know, an institute like SETI. Uh, are there... Things that have just happened in the past 10 years uh, for SETI to uh, move forward your capability of seeking out intelligent life. You know, like what what sort of technological or even organizational changes have been made in the last decade to make that uh, to, to, to make it easier for you to reach out into the universe? Well, most of those are just uh, technology or the science, actually. I'll start with the science first, because. You know, probably the biggest science or astronomy news story of the past 20 years is the discovery of planets around other stars. You know, when I was a kid, nobody knew whether there were planets around other stars. People thought, yeah, yes, maybe so. Other people said, nah, maybe not. But, you know, that's just all idle speculation. We now have data that show that planets are very, very commonplace. They're all over them, all over the universe. There are more planets than there are stars, and there are a lot of stars. So uh, that's new because that means that, all right. We don't know if there's any life in space, but there's plenty of real estate in space. So if there's all that real estate, is it all barren and sterile? Well, maybe, but 
that seems a little unlikely. So that's one development. But the the other development in terms of actually looking for signals that would tell us that, you know, the Klingons are out and about, that uh, has been benefited from the improvement in computer technology because a lot of what's done, the search for signals, involves computers. So the fact that computers keep getting more and more powerful at any given price point, that's just a good deal for SETI. And, in fact, uh, you know, any experiment you're doing today is probably equal to all the previous experiments put together in terms of its coverage of the sky and the radio dial and stuff like that. So that's a big development. Right. The real, right. Problem, the real problem with SETI is always the funding. And, uh, of course, there's a, a Russian billionaire here in the South Bay who has put some money into the Berkeley SETI program, which has been a great boon for them. But uh, there's also a story, and you might see it uh, in the papers today if you have – if you remember what a paper is, uh, that there was, there was an article in The Atlantic about uh, a congressional initiative to possibly put SETI back into the NASA budget. This depends oh. on Senate and so forth. But but it has uh, it is in the House version of this bill. So, you know, that would be good because that would mean that uh, more SETI could be done. So when was uh, when was SETI last in the NASA budget? 1993. 93. And since then, have you been able to find funding from other places to make up for that? Or is that a huge no. loss? Yeah, that was a huge loss. Yeah. Huge. What sort of, uh, you know, where would that money go if if you guys did get back on that budget? Well, uh, obviously, some of it would be used to build equipment, right? Because the equipment that's used for SETI is a little bit different than the equipment used for astronomy, radio astronomy. Uh, but also just to pay people, people it turns out cost money. Yeah, something I, I didn't I realize that. when I was in high school. Uh, you know, <laughs> inviting out the flute player for a date. You know, I didn't realize that people cost money. So, uh, you know, that, I mean, that, that that's what you have to do. And yeah, you have to, you have to pay the scientists, and you got to build some equipment. How many people are working for the institute right now? Well, the number of people that work at the institute who get a paycheck from the institute is probably around 130, 140. The number of people here that are scientists is about 70 or 80. The number of people that are here that are scientists doing SETI is maybe two. Oh. Wow. What, what's everybody else doing? Well, they do astrobiology, right? So if you're interested in life in the solar system, for example, on Mars, or there are six other places in the solar system that might have life, mostly moons of Jupiter and Saturn, um, you know, they're interested in that. And they study data taken mostly by spacecraft and try and figure out, okay, could there be life, you know, a couple of uh, yards beneath the sterile surface of uh, of Mars, for example, or, yeah. or some of these icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn? That's so cool. Because So are they, are they comparing that to what we see here on Earth? We can see, you know, in the um, those extreme zones near ocean vents and things like that and, and, and extrapolating that to what we might see in the universe? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, what are called extremophiles, right, which are right. <laughs> the kind you use to, on your toenails, I guess. Hey, extremophiles <laughs> on Earth, which are, you know, are microbes mostly. They're not all microbes, but largely microbes that can live under conditions that you, know, you just wouldn't tolerate, like boiling water, for example. Yeah. You know, yeah. An Antarctic ice uh, lake you know, down in, in the watery depths there. But there are plenty of such environments all over the place. In fact – the kind of environment we think is good for life, you know, with the salubrious temperatures we enjoy here in the Bay Area, for example, uh, those are, those might be very rare compared to these really terrible environments. There might right. be a lot of terrible environments. So 
you know, by studying those, he gets some idea of the kind of thing you might find on a moon of Jupiter, for example. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what about what about organisms that might be so completely different from life on Earth? Uh, I, I I vaguely recall there being some uh, discovery that was walked back about non-carbon based organisms a while back. Uh, is are, is there something in Mono Lake that right right? They discovered a new organism in Mono Lake that I think blew away our, our whole conception of what was required for life or what, what even defined a, a living organism. Well, yeah, uh, that was uh, Felicia Wolf Simon's work, actually, uh, but it was misconstrued by NASA as um, to, to, to suggest that these were organisms that incorporated arsenic, I think it was, right. yeah, into yeah. their DNA. And that was never the claim of the scientists involved. It was uh, the, the story got twisted. And as a result, um, Dr. Simon got some bad publicity that certainly was not warranted. Uh, but in any case, what they found was that you know, there, there are organisms that come you know, live in a pretty awful environment. I mean, Mona Lake is, is nice to look at, and uh, it's okay if Mark Twain wants to, you know, take a rowboat and cross it and all that, but it's, it's, it's a harsh environment, and yet she found that, you know, there are certain kinds of bacteria that can survive very well in that harsh environment. There, there are bacteria that can survive perfectly well in a nuclear reactor or in the gas tank of a 747 and stuff like that. I mean, it's always sort of fun to see where you find microbes because actually you find microbes almost everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that that shouldn't surprise you. I mean, they're, they're microbes that can take all the ultraviolet light they can eat, and they just thrive on it. Whereas if you get enough ultraviolet, you get skin cancer. You know what? just never works out for me the way it works out for microbes. It's not fair. Yeah. You get invited <laughs> to the better worse now, so that's true. Yeah. So, Seth, so can I – Oh, go ahead. Can, I, I want to ask a question. It sounds like we're we're talking mostly about listening and looking. Uh, what about us sending out signals – and uh, specifically, what about Stephen Hawking had, had expressed that it might be a terrible idea? <laughs> well, <laughs> that uh, space might be quiet for a reason. Yeah. I mean, this idea that everybody's laying low. Uh, that's <laughs> like expecting all my all the neighborhood dogs to be quiet, because after all, if they bark, you know, somebody might come over and hit them with a rock or something. <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem to keep them quiet. I, I, I don't really. <laughs> I, I don't subscribe to the idea that this is dangerous. Uh, Hawking did make that point, but only in one comment. And remember, it was Stephen Hawking, and Stephen Hawking is, you know, taken very seriously no matter what he's talking about, including maybe his favorite dry cleaner. I don't know. But, <laughs> right. But there, there is an organization in San Francisco called Medi International, M-E-T-I, Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Oh. Doug Vakoch, who used to have offices next to mine, actually, for many years. Uh, is is running it, and he's interested in sending signals out. Now, I don't worry about the danger. We're broadcasting anyhow. We're broadcasting FM radio. We're broadcasting television, but most notably, we're broadcasting radar signals into the sky all the time. And there are a lot of radars, so those signals are all over the place. <laughs> so if you're really worried about this, you know, you better petition to have all the radars shut down at the San Francisco airport, <laughs> which you probably probably wouldn't appreciate on a late night when it's stormy, but still. So. You know, I, I don't have any problem with it. I mean, we've already betrayed our presence. If there's anybody out there and they're hostile, you know, you might as well sit back, contemplate the infinite and, you know, wait for the havoc and destruction to arrive on our doorstep. I, the, the only uh, that's, that's pretty much my 
daily plan. Yeah, well, that's you a, nailed that's a, it. It's a good point. That's a, I, you know, the, the real problem is that the if you want to ping the nearest million stars, then you have to be sending signals to stars that are typically a couple of hundred light years away. So if you do that, and if your signal, hey, we're the Earthlings, happens to fall onto a planet where there's some inhabitants, and they decide, well, let's let them know we, we heard them, uh, you know, hundreds of years will pass before you get a reply, by which point your funding may be gone. <laughs> <laughs> funding is a fickle mistress. Yes. So, it's a mistress. Seth, uh just to wrap up, what's what's next for SETI? You guys are – so you're in the budget, maybe. You might be in the budget for NASA coming up. Uh, do you guys have – is there a, a grand plan in place? What are we going to see in the next, say, five years? Well, I think all the plans are grand. Uh, they tend to be conservative because of the lack of money. I mean if you had – you know, somebody occasionally asks me, well, what if you had, you know, a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars or two – you know, if you had a big amount of money, what would you do? That requires you to think for a while because most of what you're considering doing are things that can be done with incremental improvements in funding. Right. And so those are mostly building different kinds of equipment that allow you to essentially search uh, the sky, you know, scan the sky looking for signals faster. That's basically the name of the game. So you're looking faster. But, you know, there are all sorts of other experiments you might consider. You might uh, build more sensitive equipment to look for flashing lights in the sky. You might, you know, try and find alien engineering, alien megastructures, as they're occasionally called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that somebody, you know, that, 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 I don't know, the Phrygians or somebody have have built, you know, you just trip across it and you say, well, I don't know what, a, what it is, Bob. You know, it could just be a can opener for them, but, you know, it's clearly artificially constructed. Right. So, right. you know, there, there are those kinds of far out ideas, which are not so far out. But in the short term, what you're likely to do is just keep improving the equipment. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck on getting that NASA funding, and uh, good luck when we see you in a few weeks for your next Quizotron. Are you going to win this one? Uh, I won the last one, and it did not improve my life. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Don't tell our audience that. We, we, oh, okay. We, yeah. Sorry. It did improve my life. I got that all-expense-paid vacation right? for we six to Reykjavik. Uh, oh, Reykjavik. That's right. Reykjavik Disney. It's their new Re- resort. Rebecca, did you did you have the belt yet? Yeah. When he won? Yeah. yeah she and, did. And she, that she gave didn't the belt. improve your life? Well, it did for the three minutes she let me keep it. <laughs> then she asked for it back. I only have one belt. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's what they tell the highway patrol. <laughs> you can edit this out, Rebecca, right? We don't uh, yeah. need this behind the scenes look of people knowing that the, the winner doesn't keep the belt. So that not, really makes us look Not only am I going to edit it out, I'm going to um, use software to adjust Seth's words into saying it did improve my life dramatically. So I, I, I think you just edit out the word not. I, doesn't oh, take yeah, much that's, technology. It's a good, good. You know what? I think you should edit this podcast. Come to think of it. Uh, Seth, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime, gang. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed our first Quizlet. I completely forgot to ask Seth to plug himself, so to speak. Uh, you can find him at Seth Showstack on Twitter. You can find his show, Big Picture Science, by going to radio.seti.org. Uh, thank you so much to Seth for being our first victim here. And thank you to you for tuning in. If you enjoyed that, please uh, subscribe 
on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And please give us a good rating because that'll help more people find us. We're going to be putting out a new episode every Friday, whether that's a Quizlet or our main show, Quizotron. Uh, you can also see Quizotron in person if you come to San Francisco. We are at Piano Fight on the first Thursday of every month, and you can find out more information about that at Quizotron.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Quizotron or on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. I don't know how it works. I guess you just, just search for Quizotron. I don't know. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoy our next episode, which will feature Adam Rogers from Wired. So see you then. Bye.